hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. In most cases, when a woman decides to see a doctor for menopause care, it's usually because she's having hot flashes, can't sleep, or is experiencing vaginal dryness. It's pretty rare that someone specifically makes an appointment to discuss their bones unless they've already been diagnosed with osteoporosis or had a fracture. But in the United States, there are 10 million women with osteoporosis and 43 million women with osteopenia. And most don't know that they're at risk for a potentially life-changing or even fatal fracture. One reason for this lack of concern and lack of awareness is that osteoporosis is usually a silent disease. Today, I'm going to break that silence. Dr. Christy Tuftisapri is an internist who's not only a menopause expert, but a nationally renowned expert in osteoporosis. And we sat down to have an in-depth conversation about bone health. Once we got going, we talked for well over an hour. So I decided this topic needed to be a two-parter. In this episode, Dr. Tuftisapri and I talk about bone health in general, why you should care about bone health, risk factors for osteoporosis, and screening recommendations. We then took a break. I know, bad pun. So I will return with Dr. DeSapri for a second segment that will focus on prevention of osteoporosis and treatment for both osteopenia and osteoporosis. So welcome, Dr. Tuff DeSapri. Hi, Dr. Stryker. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. I did forget to mention that not only are we friends, but we practiced together for many, many years, both when I was in my private practice. And then, of course, both of us were at the Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause. So we've spent a lot of time together. And mm -hmm. since we've both moved on to other things, it's it's great to be able to spend this time with you again and, and catch up and talk about all things bone. So, okay, let's start with this. Um, you know, silent disease. We call it a silent disease. Why? Why is it so silent? Why is there so little awareness about it when so many women are affected? It's just not a sexy disease, right? We don't see it on the cover of billboards. We don't see it, um, you know, in our, you know, in the media. We don't see it popularized on TV. And the consequence of those thinner bones or that silent disease becomes a fracture. And that's really what we're talking about. Well, talk about, okay, since you brought up the consequence, let's talk about consequences because I think the big reason is, is you know, again, why should women care about this? This is why we're having this conversation though. So talk a little bit about why should women care? So, yeah, so consequence of osteoporosis. So many times women say, I don't understand what a fracture is. And I like to say, okay, well, let's define what a fracture is. What are we talking about? We're not talking about like, you know, a little thumb fracture or a toe fracture. Um, but osteoporosis-related fractures are fractures of the, uh, of the fractures are things of the fractures of the hip, the spine, the wrist, a collarbone, ankle, anything that's a, a fracture or a bone break from a fall from a standing height or less. And so obviously that's going to cause um, some consequences, some people, um, some delayed time back to work, some difficulty with mobility. Um, in fact, the hip fractures is which the, the fracture that I always say is sort of the fracture that we want to prevent uh, the most. And oftentimes we see in women in their 70s or 80s 
uh, and death decades of life. Um, the consequences of hip fracture are deleterious. Some people can have um, mobility issues. 20% of women never walk again. 20% of people uh, can uh, die, mostly from an infection or um, immobility. Right, wait, wait, uh, wait, 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 stop right there. Let's talk about that because you just kind of like skimmed over. Yeah, and people die. People do not think of osteoporosis as a potentially fatal disease. Yet the numbers are really scary. They're really, really significant when you think in terms of people that fracture, how many of them actually die because right. of that fracture. So go over that again. Right. And I think it's because we realize that, you know, osteoporosis, when we're doing a bone density or when someone has a fracture in their 50s or 60s and they have osteoporosis, we say, okay, you have osteoporosis, but we don't really, you know, usually um, if people are seeing their internists or gynecologists are not really talking about that. But untreated osteoporosis, and particularly that's where we see untreated osteoporosis leading to hip fractures, which are consequences later in life. So having a hip fracture generally, uh, we see more common in the women, in their, again, their 70th or 80th decades of life, is when we see the consequence of a fracture. Again, a hip fracture is the most serious type of fracture because that really has the most serious consequences attached to it, not being able to walk, not being able to live independently. And like I mentioned, even you know death or dying from consequences of immobility or that hip fracture sustaining an infection. And the fact of the matter is that osteoporosis has been untreated for so long. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you got everyone's attention with that one. Circling back to the whole silent disease thing, you know, obviously if someone has a fracture, you're right, it's not so silent. But one of the common questions that women ask is about any symptoms that they might have short of a fracture. I can't tell you, and I'm sure you hear the same thing. Oh, I have terrible pain in my hip, so I wonder if I have osteoporosis. Can you talk a little bit about does osteoporosis ever cause pain as an early warning sign? And are there any other red flags short of a fracture that someone might have uh, some significant bone loss. Exactly. So, yeah, so people who, um, you know, osteoporosis is painless unless you've had a fracture and you would know that. However, you know, when we scan things like the spine or the vertebra in a bone density, what we're looking for on that bone density scan is we're looking for any signs of a potential fracture. And the, what you ask me in terms of like any clinical signs or, you know, patients is actually back pain. So back pain, I mean, we know we go to medical school, we list the differential of back pain, which is all the different causes of back pain. There's so many, right? It can be that you pulled a muscle in the gym or you slipped a disc or herniated disc or um, some muscle issues. But actually with back pain coupled with some height loss, and when we think about height loss, we think about making sure, number one, that you know the height that you are when you are you know, achieving peak bone mass around your 30s or 40s um, and knowing if you've lost any height. And that's why it's so pivotal to measure your bone or measure your uh, height on a, a wall-mounted stadiometer, which is a fancy term for basically a uh, height measurement uh, against a wall that a professional is doing at least yearly. Because if you have lost height and you do have osteoporosis, two-thirds of the time, osteoporosis-related fractures of the spine can be present. So it's yeah. very common, and we see these incidentally on I just read a bone, an x-ray, a chest x-ray yesterday. We see them on x-rays, on CT scans, or just on the bone density. Um, so we, that is very important if you've lost height and if you have osteoporosis, we need to look for those signs. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about screening, of course, in a little bit. But it's, I mean, think about this. 
that's a free way to screen. How often do you go to the doctor? They never measure you. They just say, how tall are you? And everyone says what their height was when they were 20. And it's not until their pants start to drag on the floor because they realize that they're shorter than they used to be, that suddenly people are thinking, oh, maybe I have lost height. And sometimes it's it's posture. And we could talk a little bit about posture and, and that impact. But as when you have little kids and you paint the the measurements stick on the wall and you measure them every year, we should really continue to do that as adults at home because that is a, an excellent early warning. Exactly. I probably should have started with this, but could you just please define osteoporosis? Sure. Yeah. So osteoporosis really derives from the other Greek term osteo, which is bone and porosis, which is uh, thin or frail. And really osteoporosis is characterized by um, a skeletal or skeleton disorder. So every single bone in our body um, where uh, the bone density decreases or the bone uh, porosity increases. So the bone becomes more porous and the bone density becomes thinner um, to the point where a fracture can occur. And so that's it varies for some people. For some people, uh, their bone density needs to drop very low, and we define that by uh, looking at a bone mineral density um, on a, a DEXA scan, which is a gold standard, a dual energy x-ray absorbitometry uh, scan, which is basically a glorified x-ray of the spine um, and of the hips, and sometimes we scan the forearm, and that basically gives us, uh, estimates about 60% of our bone strength. Um, and then there's some other qualities or characteristics on a bone density now that can help us determine the bone micro architecture or the bone quality as well. And so um, that really is the definition when we, we have porous or uh, decreased bone density that uh, decreases to the point where it increases our risk for a skeletal fracture or a, a low trauma fracture. You know, one of the things that you said is that it affects every single bone in our body. And we often don't think about that. We think about the hip. We think about the spine because that's where the serious and common fractures occur. I was um, giving a lecture at the International Menopause Society a few months ago in Portugal, and my lecture was on skin and facial changes. And one of the things I learned when I was preparing for my lecture is that a lot of the reason why we have um, saggy skin and even those bags under our eyes is because of facial bone loss, which is not something we think about. And obviously it's not life-threatening, but I thought it was just really interesting to think about the fact that we are losing bone in our bodies in places that we're not necessarily thinking about. So Right. So every bone in our body is made up of two different types of bone. Trabecular bone, which is sort of like looks like a loofah you wouldn't want to use, I always say. It's sort of like spongier bone. It remodels or regrows very quickly. Um, and then uh, cortical bone, which is a denser, you know, sort of strong bone. Typically, you think about with like a strong bone envelope, which is more common in our, like in our long bones, like our hip and our wrist. And so the DEXA scan, again, measures those two, measures areas where there's both cancellus or trabecular bone in our spine, and then more densely cortical bone in our hip. But like you said, every single bone, even our teeth. So when people say, oh, I went to the dentist, and they did x-rays, and they say I'm having bone loss in my jaw or my mandible, I say, Absolutely. That is trabecular bone and periosteal bone, which is similar to what our, is in our jaw and around our, t uh, our tooth socket, is the same bone, um, just with a different name. So, and seen by a different specialist. So, yeah. um, so I always say, and even like rib, you know, I'll have to see some patients who have rib fractures. And again, that's a hallmark of osteoporosis or uh, x-rays that say the bone looks osteopenic. So again, those are all signs that there's bone loss in other areas that were beyond the ones that we're scanning or beyond the ones that we're thinking about. And it's also not the same in every bone. That's something that we see all the time that someone might learn that they have significant bone loss in their spine 
but not in their hip. So that's why mm-hmm. one more than one area is screened, of course, because you can't just assume that because one bone has a certain density that all the bones in your body. And we're going to talk a little bit about risk factors and why that would be that it's you're not going to get a matching set of bones throughout your body. But before right. we do that, let's talk a little bit about osteopenia or low bone mass, because many women um, are told that that they don't have osteoporosis. However, they do have osteopenia. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so osteopenia is, and we've actually kind of moved away from that term now. And in the the International Society of Clinical Densitometry, and which is sort of the guiding principles of how we measure bone mass, and the uh, some of the medical societies will prefer the term low bone mass. But I always feel like it's hard to get away from uh, from the term osteopenia. But basically, that just means is uh, it is a precursor to osteoporosis. So just in the continuum of bone mass from, you know, normal or peak bone mass um, compared to someone who is, again, of, uh, of with normal bone mass. Um, osteopenia means some bone has been lost. So I always use the analogy, I think it's an easy one, of a bone bank, really. You know, we build our bone bank through our teen years, per- the uh, puberty years, early 20s and 30s, and then depending on the skeletal site, we sort of achieve all the peak bone mass that we're going to have. And that varies based on genetics, ethnicity, lifestyle factors. And then at menopause, as you mentioned, you know, just recently about how bone can be different at different sites, we start to lose bone density. And that's where sometimes we start to see, define and diagnose osteopenia because a woman has her first bone density and maybe in between her 50s and 60s. And someone tells her she has osteopenia and it's sort of shocking, right? How did, how did this happen? But the reality is most likely that happened because one, she's a female. Two, she had menopause, um, and then maybe there's some other factors. So osteopenia, in the grand scheme of things, when we look at it, it's some mild mild to moderate bone loss, and we need to obviously become aware of that. We can tailor some approaches to uh, hormone therapy and lifestyle and calcium, vitamin D exercise. And, and for some women, actually, osteopenia um, is, you know, is something that we should take even, uh, you know, more seriously and we should even think about treatment or prevention options. And that's where something where we really take into account when I see patients for consult and really look at the whole person, not just what the bone density says or not just that they have osteopenia. You know, one of the things that you said is women will respond with, whoa, when did that happen? I didn't know I had low bone mass. And, and when we first started doing bone density in my practice many years ago, and when we had a new technician and a new machine and we wanted to practice using it and the way that we learn how to do these things sometimes in the office is that we were doing bone densities on the staff and our staff happened to be women who were basically in their 20s. And we thought, oh, well, they're all going to have normal bone densities, but it's still good for practice. So we put them on the machine and much to our surprise, a lot of them had a low bone density. We even had one with osteoporosis, a woman who was in her 20s. So how does that happen? Sometimes um, making sure that that's not, you know, user error, that can actually, you know, occur. And and, and we see this, right? And that's why, for you know, bone density is not just reserved for postmenopausal women. We can use it in premenopausal women. Uh, we do have something called a Z-score that compares that. Um, and that can be done if, again, women have, premenopausal women have either, you know, early menopause or fractures or, um, you know, medical or, or surgical conditions that would predispose them to early low bo- uh, bone mass early. So the reality is this is such an, a, you know, a contentious area of when do we start bone density screening? Right. Um, many of the medical societies say 
you know, at the time of menopause. And you and I know that we see so many women who undergo premature menopause, whether that's surgical menopause for, um, you know, cancer, you know, cancer uh, prevention surgeries or chemotherapy or radiation or um, idiopathic uh, uh, premature ovarian insufficiency. So um, those women have reached menopause and regardless of their age, they should obtain a bone density. Right. But so, okay. So, but generally speaking, we're doing our first screening usually in the 60s, sometimes earlier with risk factors. But one of the things that's always occurred to me is if you do have a young woman who maybe, you know, she didn't drink milk when she was a kid, or maybe she had other risk factors and starts off with low bone mass, and then she has her first screening when she's 65 and is told, oh, you have low bone mass and you're very high risk for developing osteoporosis, when in fact, she's always had low bone mass. So I think maybe we could, I know insurance doesn't cover it and we don't do it, but I think there there is potentially a case to be made for, for doing some earlier baseline screening, if you will. But let's now let's talk about the person who doesn't have low bone mass, who has normal bone mass. What is the overall likelihood that in the general population, someone is going to develop osteoporosis later in life. How common is osteoporosis in the general population? So, yeah. So again, it depends on the baseline bone mass, but we know that osteoporosis is very common. In fact, more common than breast cancer, stroke, and heart attack combined. Again, the outcome. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait, Go back. Combined. It's not more common than breast cancer. It's not more common than stroke. It's not more common than heart disease. It's more common than all of those things combined. And yet it never makes it the top 10 list of of things that people should be worried about. Right. Exactly. Particularly the outcome of fractures. And so that's exactly, you know, what I say. So between 50 and 65, most women have a risk factor for osteoporosis, like you just mentioned, menopause, family history, sedentary lifestyle, diabetes, medical conditions, surgical conditions, medicines. And then when we look at 65, for so many women, it's already kind of too late. They either have osteoporosis, osteopenia, or developed a fracture because one in two, so 50%. So, you know, I always say, you know, you know, flip a coin. You're, it's 50% that you would develop an osteoporosis-related fracture if you live long enough, right? And there's many things that we could do to prevent fractures. I'm sure we're going to talk about falls and things like that. Um, in addition, so I I liken, you know, bone density screening or bone health assessment as, as, as the same, sort of similar to mammogram, right? We, we do a mammogram. Because we don't feel, many women do not feel a breast mass. They don't, you know, you know, they don't understand their risk factors for breast cancer, um, although we're starting to learn a little bit more about that. But then when they get that knowledge, then they do. Should they get a mammogram yearly, every other year? What should they do to modify their risk? It's the same thing with osteoporosis. Get a bone density scan or understand your bone health assessment. Where are you? And then go from there. Do you need treatment? Do we need to change lifestyle? Um do you need prevention medicines like hormone therapy? Yeah, but let's, you know, let's just like say you're a woman who's listening to this and you have no known risk factors. You've never had a fracture. You don't have a strong family history. We're going to go through some of the risk factors in more detail. But for a woman who has no known risk factors with no fracture, when do you tell that woman to get her first baseline bone density to screen for osteoporosis? Um. Uh- I don't, I never see any of those women who don't have any issues. <laughs> you did. But I'm just kidding. I just had to throw that. Um, cause many women have some sort of risk factor, but I would say, so the medical societies, Medicare, 
the ACOG, et cetera, all these uh, the, uh, internal medicine studies would say age 65. Yeah, yeah. But, 65. But like and said, Medicare we, we will tend to, pay for that. Yeah. And then what we find, because the, the million dollar question, of course, everyone always asks us is, well, if I get it earlier, will insurance cover it? And the answer, of course, is if it's abnormal, they'll cover it because then you've got a diagnosis. But if it's normal, they may not cover it. So that's a problem. That's a right. Problem. Well, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of tricks that we sometimes use to, to help with coverage and find a, a reason, height loss, family history. Right. You, know, you find those like risk that. factors. Well, let's, let's talk right. a little bit more about the risk factors, because whenever we talk about risk factors for any problem, we always talk about modifiable risk factors, things that people can actually do to modify that risk and non-modifiable. So let's start with the non-modifiable risk factors for osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, most of the women, we, people we see are women. So just being, you know, a female sex is going to be a risk factor that is non-modifiable. Again, because our peak bone mass is lower in women, mostly because we do not have the testosterone surge that men do. Um, time of menopause, um, again, which is non-modifiable for many women, or an earlier menopause uh, equaling, you know, some earlier bone loss or sort of a longer duration of bone loss. Um, is the reason uh, that that women are more likely to have osteoporosis, not just, of course, the loss of estrogen, men don't make estrogen, but um, it's the testosterone factor, because mm-hmm. women do make testosterone. Of course, I've got a couple oh, podcasts no. on that. It's a human hormone, not a, not a male hormone, but they certainly make it in much lower amounts, about one-tenth that of what men make. And then, of course, it gets lower after menopause. So is that the primary reason that women that are more likely? Reason. Yeah. Yep. That is the primary age. So we know age, again, older age, we lose some bone mass. And we're learning so many more things about muscle loss as well. So this this term called sarcopenia, which is basically a fancy term for muscle loss, particularly after the 70th decade, 70th decade of life, we're starting to see more, you know, 10% of our muscle loss um, each decade. So that really changes, right? That if you have genetics, less muscle loss, genetics is less the, 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 the top of the list for well. non-modifiable. You betcha. So, um, you know, per, certain ethnicities, so we know Caucasian ethnicity, Asian ethnicity, lower peak bone masses. Um, and that's where sometimes we need to look at the something called the Z-score, which compares those women to their similar age, race, and sex math, not just, you know, what was the you know, the, the Caucasian database. Well, you know, it's funny because we were always taught in medical school that the poster child for osteoporosis was the the skinny Caucasian woman with blonde hair and that black women were not at risk. And we now know that that is absolutely not the case. Can you talk about mm-hmm. black women and osteoporosis? Yeah, so there has been, um, you know, a lot of more research in recent years about that, particularly the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation. Now they were before called NOF, now they're called the BHOF. Um, they, you know, commissioned um, uh, some groups to look at, you know, look at this. And we do know that now African-American black women have a higher risk of fractures. Um, particularly hip fractures um, and go more, you know, are largely untreated again, because the thought is, okay, well, you know, the, their bone mass is a little bit larger. They might not develop fractures, but the reality is they're getting underscreened like many women, um, and they have a higher potential uh, for consequences of, of fractures and higher. So is levels it that they're treat- under? I mean, under it's like treatment. so many other things in the black population. Is it underscreening um, that's really the issue, as opposed it's probably to probably underscreening and then under? Um, uh, you know, again, the the importance of the issue um, is not as highlighted, um, and, and and then again, like treatment 
you know, options. Sometimes if that's not marketed towards you or you don't understand those treatment options, they're not being shared with you. Women are not going to be on the right. So with with education and outreach, we can turn that around. Let's talk about modifiable factors, things that people do or don't do (laughs) that may increase their risk. Right. So again, the ones that we learn, you know, these are, you know, things that, you know, obviously smoking, you know, is not going to be something that we're going to endorse. Not only are you going to have you know, earlier menopause and more hot flashes, um, but you're also going to have a lower bone density, not, you know, notwithstanding all the other cardiovascular disease, so smoking, um, excess alcohol, which not only increases bone resorption, but also increases your risk for falls. So, um, yeah, it's something that we always want to be, at, you know, asking about. Um, what about lifestyle. carbonated beverages? Is that on the list? Yeah. So, I mean, that's like low, low down on the list. Okay, that's like I do you know, see that fine, pop fine up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what happens with the carbonated beverages and they've done some studies in caffeine. And so I sometimes use those, you know, caffeine less than, you know, more than four cups of, you know, coffee a day, you know, thinking a a cup of coffee is about 300 milligrams of caffeine has shown to be higher risk for bone loss compared to women who drank less than two cups of coffee a day. So, you know, when people tell me, oh, I just have one cup of coffee, do I have to cut that out? I mean, they, I say, no, you don't have to cut that out. More than four cups of coffee, more than four caffeinated drinks. Like I'm talking to my patients who drink like, you know, a pack of, you know, couple Diet Cokes today, I would decrease that. Number one, it's the caffeine. And number two, it's the phosphoric acid, which we know depletes calcium. So, you know, when we think about bones, what are they actually made up of? So again, simplicity, they're made up of bones are calcium, phosphorus, and then a bunch of bone cells, which we call osteoblasts, the bone forming cells, osteoclasts, osteocytes, other collagen proteins, um, and things like that. So anything that leaches or affects those the sort of the metabolism of those things, uh, those couple things are going to affect the bone density. So calcium that's getting leached out, and there's actually even conditions that can do that or medicines that can do that. And then excessive amounts of phosphoric acid in sodas or caffeine can also leach that. Can you talk about the top two or three conditions that can do that and also the top two or three medications that might increase someone's risk? Sure. So, you know, again, when we think about metabolism um, of calcium and vitamin D or, um, uh, you know, inflammatory conditions. So the most, you know, the things that we concerned about most, we're concerned about most in terms of medical conditions are things like inflammatory bowel diseases. I see a lot of women with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, not only the the condition, but also a lot of the medications we use, like glucocorticoids or steroids or prednisone that we use for those conditions and treatments of those conditions. I think medicines, uh, sorry, conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, also, again, an inflammatory condition can affect the muscles and, the, and bones and then the medicines that we use towards that are also deleterious on the bone density. Things like celiac disease, um, which, again, affect the metabolism and the um, uh, and the absorption of calcium and, and vitamin D. Um, we're now learning so much because the world of diabetes has literally exploded um, in terms of diabetes, both type 1 diabetes, which we've known for a long time, but also type 2 diabetes in terms of um, how the um, uncontrolled diabetes and what we call something called the end uh, products of glycosylation that end up in the bone marrow and contribute to sort of bone marrow fat or adiposity, which replace the bone cells that should actually be there. So that actually contributes to maybe a potentially a higher bone density on the numbers, but a, also a higher risk of fracture because those bones are weaker. And so understanding, again, the conditions and how they can impact the bone density and fracture risk is important. You know, one of the things that um, confounds this whole thing, makes it 
confusing is that one of the risk factors, of course, is being very, very thin. I've talked so often in other podcasts about the fact that women who are carrying extra weight or that women that have obesity are making estrogen, which can impact their risk of things like uterine cancer and breast cancer Mm -hmm. in a negative way. But estrogen for bones is really good. And so when we look in terms of risk factors, that's one of the reasons why very thin women are at increased risk for bone loss and women who have extra weight are at decreased risk. But those same women that have extra weight are at increased risk for developing metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes, which in turn, what you're telling us now, increases the risk of bone loss. So right. I, so, I again, it's, quantify this, but, but right. which is the more important factor? I mean, obviously you want everyone to be at a healthy body weight for a variety of reasons, but mm-hmm. it seems like you can't win. If you, right. you know, if you lose the weight, right. I think then you're just going to lose the your bones. Ob- right. I think it's been termed like the obesity paradox in, in the past. Right. So we're talking about diabetes, like uncontrolled diabetes and, you know, not so much like prediabetes, but the reality is, and some of the medicines we use for diabetes now also affect bone density. Um, but you made a good point about another modifiable risk factor. I mean, you know, through, through the lifespan, weight can go up and down, pregnancy, um, you know, some patients who are collegiate athletes, um, dancers, you know, all these things. So I really more look at like the, you know, muscle mass. And I, I see a lot of women in their 70s and 80s, again, they're not nutritionally needing to, you know, cook meals for their families. And so they, you know, are not really having, getting the adequate protein or calcium or vitamin D um, that they're, that they used to have. So their diet has, you know, dramatically changed. And so weight has also changed. So I think that that's something to think about through the lifespan. And I really more focus on like, you know, again, what's the muscle mass looking like? What does your bone density look like? What is your nutritionally looking like? There's some evidence on, you know, calcium intake, but also protein, you know, that's helpful for the bone mass. Um, as well as, you know, just again. So are vegetarians a, at higher risk if, if, if people have you know, less protein in their diet? Yeah. Yeah. There was some recent, like, you know, what we call observational study looking at that, looking at like the vegetarians. I think you commented on it too, um, it, you know, in the news, Lauren, um, that, you know, potentially vegetarians are at a higher risk for fracture. But again, you know, whether that's, you know, causal effect, probably not, you know? And so again, I think you more don't need to focus on the macronutrition and that's where, you know, sometimes I do lean on some of my colleagues. I mean, I give a lot of counseling on calcium and trying to get adequate calcium and diet and or supplements. You know, there's so many non-dairy sources of calcium out there now. And then sometimes we talk to nutritionists, the patients say, I just can't figure out how to do this. Or I'm, I have so many other restrictions because of dietary or, um, you know, or, or other. So yeah, the reality, gonna, I think we're going to talk about that in terms of diet and prevention and everything. But the other question I have when we look at risk factors is you've already said at the top of the list, of course, is menopause. Um, cause women stop making not only estrogen, but they have decreased testosterone over time. And I'm curious, um, first of all, do menopausal women lose bone equally in their spine and their hip, or is one more of a problem than the other? And then part two of my question is, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, is the relationship between hot flashes and bone loss. Because we know that if you look at a large group of menopausal women, as they did in the SWAN study that I referred to so many times, that it's the women with hot flashes who seem to have much, much higher rates of um, of osteoporosis, of bone loss. So is that a direct effect of the hot flashes? So part one is hip and spine mm-hmm. in menopause, and part two is um, 
hot flashes? What are the, what's the relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so absolutely. And this this is so important when we do a bone density between women between 50, let's say, and, and 60, and you're recently menopausal. So just like we talked about those two different types of bone in the body, we are going to lose you know, more trabecular bone, um, which is more predominantly in the spine or the vertebral bodies that we're measuring that lumbar vertebrae. Usually a, a bone density captures lumbar vertebrae one through four. Um, and so we are going to see a, a, a difference. And in, in many women, we do see a difference of a lower bone density in the spine than, than in the hip, which is the cortical area of the bone or stronger bone density that's more preserved. And it's the same analogy, same reason why we don't see a hip fracture. You know, we don't have women who are in their 50s, you know, having a hip fracture. You know, we, that's a very rare occurrence. So when I see that, that is something we really, you know, the, 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 the warning signs really go off. Um, but we see hip fractures later in women in their 70s or 80s because, again, osteoporosis has been untreated and we've lost bone, den- bone density out of the trabecular compartment. And then eventually so much bone loss has occurred and then we lose bone density in the cortical bone. And so this is where, you know, early menopausal women who might be, like we said, a totally asymptomatic, they have their screening bone density and someone tells them they have osteoporosis or osteopenia, more, more than likely that's going to be the lower bone density is going to be in their spine. And if we do something called, since we're talking about risk factors and risk factor assessment, we do something called a FRAC score, which um, is a risk assessment tool. It's freely available. Um, and it is something that we've sort of used in the bone community and even in primary care now to help us determine who's at highest risk for fracture based on the bone density and all those questions you answered on that one page or longer questionnaire. What's your name? When would you have menopause? All those questions. Um, that sometimes, again, if, if you have a low bone density in the spine but not in the hip, says you're at low risk for fracture. You have nothing to worry about. Please get a bone density in you know, a couple of years and, and move on. But the reality is we know that bone loss will eventually occur. We know that 20% of bone loss you know, can happen. Some women can lose up to 20% of their bone mass through the menopause transition, which can be a, a one to five year period, uh, you know, for some women. Um, and so we really should take note of that and not just sort of say, you know, see you in a couple of years and then you'll have worse osteoporosis and then we'll deal with you then, right? So it's sort of kicking the can down the road. So I really focus on the prevention during that time if yeah. someone had a low but bone let's, mass. Let's just say, because one of the questions that comes up, of course, is, is how often someone should get screened. And there's no question that if someone has been diagnosed with low bone mass or osteoporosis, they're going to have regular um, DEXAs to, to see what's going on. But if you have a woman who says gets her first bone density at age 65, and it is perfectly normal, and then she has the follow-up two or three years later, and it is perfectly normal, does she still have to keep getting those bone densities? No, I mean, if you have a normal bone density, there's there's been some studies back in the you know in 2012, 2013, um, published really that if you have a normal bone density, it's going to take you more than 15 years to develop even osteopenia. So really, if you have normal bone density and you don't have any new risk factors, you know. Some, you know, right. No, I'm talking about some with no need, risk factors. Once they right. make it through their first five years yeah. of menopause, if their bones are good, their bones are good. Yeah, usually, you know, and then usually just for, you know, because we're always concerned physicians, you know, some people will scan every five to seven years. But the literature really showed that the, the risk of, of developing osteoporosis from a normal bone density over 15 years is very, very low, yeah. you know, less than 10%. 
So, um, so right. So again, we, we rarely see those, those women, but, um, you know, cause we, we see the, we see the complicated, more complicated. Right, you faces, see the, you but, see the yeah. risk women, but let me ask you this. So, you know, we think in terms of women that have osteoporosis as being at high risk for fracture. We've talked a lot about that. And women who have low bone mass or osteopenia, really, we don't think of them as being at risk for fracture. But my understanding is, is that where the, that's where the FRAX score that you talked about, FRAX, that FRAX score can really help determine if a woman is at risk for fracture, even if she doesn't have osteoporosis. Can can you address that? Right. So the FRAX score, so some of the risk factors we've talked about, the FRAX score, which um, was developed to help us understand, you know, who in this large category of, of osteopenia should be either you know, looked at with a little bit more in depth and who should be, you know, tr- really think about, it really looked at, you know, treatment, who should be, you know, who should we t- talk about treatment, whether prevention, preventative treatment or pharmacologic therapy. Um, and so if, you know, and this can be done, again, sometimes this report is on your bone density or I can pull, you can pull it up and, and, and do it on any, um, you know, using the URL um, and just type in Google, you know, FRAX and it, pulls up um, country specific and ethnicity and then putting in age and and we use something called the femoral neck which is the area everyone thinks is their their neck but it's actually the femoral neck of their hip um, and we put in the bone mineral density and that can calculate and and what we what it shows and again this is based on population based studies right so this is not individualized but it can sometimes help um, guide some of you know our therapy is if your risk of of a major osteoporosis fracture which is like your hip, your your wrist, um, your pelvis, et cetera, are more than 20% based on all the bone density and all the risk factors like, if, have you had another fracture? Did your parent have a fracture? Are you smoking? Do you have rheumatoid arthritis? There's a whole, there's about 12 different, you know, input. Um, if that fracture risk is over 20%, it says, yes, we should consider therapy. If it's, uh, if your risk of a hip fracture is over 3%, it's sort of like a, again, like the Monopoly board. Please, you know, go right to go right to talk <laughs> no, to but someone the, but about. The point therapy. is, is that someone can be diagnosed with osteopenia or low bone mass and still be at risk for fracture. And I think that that's a really important point because so many women, um, you know, they have these computer generated results that are not read by an expert, and they're told osteopenia, you know, pass go. You've got nothing mm-hmm. to worry about. When in fact. This is a woman that does need to take some action steps. So lots of information. Just to recap, osteoporosis is a silent disease until someone has a fracture, which is why it's so important to know risk factors and prevention strategies before there's a fracture. The major risk factors for bone loss include age, menopause, prior personal history or parental history of osteoporotic fracture, steroid use, smoking, excess alcohol, and low body mass index. The way to know your bone mass and your risk of osteoporosis is by having a DEXA scan that measures your bone density in your hip, spine, and sometimes forearm. To assess your true risk of fracture, it's also important to incorporate other risk factors by calculating your FRAC score. Timing of your first DEXA screening It varies depending on your personal risk factors, but it should be no later than at age 65. In part two, I'm going to continue my conversation with Dr. Tuff DeSapri and focus on prevention and treatment. We'll be talking about the role of exercise, diet, supplements, and drugs. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. Thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. 
and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Through the night, I follow Francie. Yeah. 